When we enter the book of Deuteronomy, the year is approximately 1406 B.C. And it has been 40 long years since the exodus from Egypt, which occurred in Exodus 12 in approximately 1446 B.C. These intervening years have included a decades-long judgment where the Israelites have been forbidden from entering the Promised Land. The book of Deuteronomy is after this judgment has reached its culmination. And the Israelites who have grown up in the wilderness, who were either not yet born when Numbers 13 and 14 rebellion happened, or who were young children and grew up the rest of the way into adulthood in the wilderness, these are now poised to enter the Promised Land. Location-wise, as we see on this map, um, Moab is where they're at. And they're going to cross the Jordan River under Joshua's leadership to take Jericho. That's the first thing that's going to happen after the book of Deuteronomy ends. So they're on the eastern side of the Jordan River in around 1406 B.C. And they are listening to Moses' sermons in the 40th year. The book of Deuteronomy primarily consists of Moses' sermons. And part of his sermons at the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy are a few chapters of historical review. And he's not just trying to tell their whole history. That's not what he's after. The question we ought to ask ourselves is, why would it be important that they're reminded of what he reminds them of? There is so much that has gone before them. Much that has happened in the days even preceding Israel among the patriarchs. So why is it that the things he highlights should be things they keep in mind? In the opening chapters of Deuteronomy, we see in chapter 1, verses 6 to 8, that we looked at last week, Moses reminds them that while they were all at Mount Sinai all those years ago, God basically said, it's time to move on from this mountain. You're not going to stay here any longer. They, they were at Mount Sinai for approximately 11 months total, and it was time to move, and providentially, God was leading them to the promised land. In verses 9 to 18 of Deuteronomy 1, he started to remind them of the many conflicts that arose because of how numerous they were as a people. The practical solution is recounted in the book of Exodus and reminded uh, to these Israelites in, in Deuteronomy 1. God was going to administer justice, not just through Moses, but through a series of leaders. Leaders that he was going to set apart and appoint from their tribes to administer help to them and handle their different disputes. These leaders were entrusted with making judgments that were impartial and righteous. Judgments that were not to be influenced by partiality with worldly criteria or the fear of man. These judgments were to represent God's work in their midst. The historical review continues. In Deuteronomy 1.19, Moses is going to remind them of something not that took place in Exodus this time, but something that took place in the book of Numbers. In the book of Numbers, we come to Numbers 13 and 14, a threshold in the storyline of Israel's history where they, as an old Exodus generation, rejected the promises of the Lord and refused to enter the promised land. And now a new generation has arisen. Moses is likely wanting to review this particular history for them so that they will see what their forebears did and know what not to do. Isn't that sometimes the way we learn when we consider the testimonies of people in our lives? We hear of things in their past and we realize not everything should be imitated. Some things should be a lesson of what not to do. This kind of historical review is that kind. In Deuteronomy 1, he wants to put before them what their ancestors had done that would provoke the judgment of God. 
And that is so that this new generation will have faith in God, hold to His promises, eagerly enter the promised land, and not do what their forefathers did. In chapter 119, he tells them that we set out from Horeb, which is the same as the mountain known as Sinai. And in verses 19 through 25, he's going to help them remember the return of the spies. The return of the spies. In the background here is Numbers 13 and 14. So we set out from Horeb and we went through all that great and terrifying wilderness that you saw. On the way to the hill country of the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea. Now, Egypt is this direction. It would be on this part of the wall outside of the map. And so they have traveled from Egypt down to the Sinai area down here. They've gone up to Kadesh Barnea. Uh, Here we're told that Numbers 13 and 14 is the background for it. This is the area, and they're just south of the Promised Land. In other words, they are quite close. After all these days of travel, and after months at Mount Sinai, they are now right directly south of the Promised Land. So we have arrived, he says, at this hill country of the Amorites. We came to Kadesh Barnea. And I said to you in verse 20, You've come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. The Amorites is a word not of a particular region, but people that can travel around and represent the Canaanites throughout the land. Sometimes those Amorites are in this area. Sometimes those Amorites are in this area. The Amorites are not necessarily tied to a a, a specific hard and fast city as much as they are a band of people and and splintered groups of rulers and and, um, Amorite peoples that can um, be associated with the promised land. So when he says, this hill country of the Amorites is that which the Lord our God is giving us, that's another way of saying we've come to the land of Canaan. We've come to the land of Canaan, and that's the land of promise from Genesis 12 onward for Abraham and his descendants. See, in verse 21, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and take possession as the Lord our God, the Lord, the God of your fathers has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. I think go up is not just his encouragement, but even the geographical move. They are to see themselves in Kadesh Barnea as a people who are going to go up straight north into the promised land. And begin the conquest. So go in and take possession. Go up as the Lord, the God of your fathers has told you. But in verse 21, do not fear. Do not be dismayed. One of the reasons they might fear. And one of the reasons they might be dismayed. Or their hearts be downcast. Is because this land is not a vacant land. It's filled with idol worshippers. And hostile opponents to Yahweh. And when they go to take possession of the land, they're going to inherit a land that is occupied by neighboring peoples, by Philistines and all sorts of other neighboring peoples that are named in the Old Testament Torah. And during these books, where Israel's journey and their history interacts with these peoples, we associate them with immorality and idolatry and a coming judgment upon them. The Israelites could look from a worldly perspective and say, these people hate you, Yahweh. They don't worship you. Their deeds and their vile acts, they provoke your judgment. We're afraid. So he challenges this in the recollection of those days in verse 21. And he said, I told you, don't fear or be dismayed. And all of you came to me in verse 22 with a plan. You said to me, let's send men before us that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up and the cities into which we shall come. 
When you read in Numbers 13, this plan is about the 12 spies that explored Canaan. So the 12 spies exploring Canaan is recalled here in verse 22. Let's send men. And so it's not just Moses' idea. We realize here from verse 22, this was something the people were eager to do. When Moses does what he does in Numbers 13, that's not against the will of the people. They desire some reconnaissance to take place that's going to preempt their conquest in battle. Let's send in a representative group, just 12 people, and they're going to help us with gathering information. And they're going to be able to report back a lot more facts on the ground than we have just looking into the land from Kadesh Barnea looking northward. We're going to be able to get some specifics. We're going to learn about ways we should go. And we're going to learn about cities into which we shall come. I think the end of verse 22 tells us the people of Israel were optimistic up to this point. Because the language they use is the way by which we must go up and the cities into which we shall come. They seem to be sending in the spies not because they themselves don't want to take the land. They want to take the land and with more information, Lord willing. Moses says in verse 23, the things seem good to me. And I took 12 men from you, one man from each tribe. All of those men are actually named in Numbers 13, verses 2 to 16. And in verse 24, they turned and went up into the hill country, and they came to the valley of Eshgal and spied it out. The valley of Eshgal is near a place called Hebron, which is about right here. So uh, west of the Dead Sea that we saw earlier. You're looking west of the Dead Sea into the Promised Land. And uh, around this area... Really zoomed in. Uh, you see this place called Hebron where the Valley of Eshgal is. And Eshgal literally means grapes. And so they go into the Valley of Eshgal. And in verse 24, they spy it out. And they bring back in verse 25 in their hands some of the fruit of the land. And brought it down to us. Likely one of the reasons certain places and valleys and villages were named what they were. Were because of things present in the land. And this place was known as the Valley of Eshgal. It was a fruitful place. And they brought back evidence of this. God had already told them it was a land flowing with milk and honey. And that was a way of talking about the lavish and blessed state of the land. They don't need to worry that they're going into some barren wilderness. They're coming out of that, Lord willing, now. And they're heading into a land of promise, a land of milk and honey, a land of fruitfulness. And so they have this fruit in their hands and they're bringing it down and they bring us word and they say, it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. If you recall Numbers 13, and it's been a while since we were there, there is more to the report than this. This part is true. They did bring back fruitfulness of the land. But some of the spies were willing to go while the majority were unwilling. And that's why the Report goes the way it goes in verses 26 to 33 when they remember the refusal of the Israelites. This is not trying to downplay the unbelief that was demonstrated. Numbers 13 and 14 is in the background here. I think intentionally so. So not hiding anything, just not rehashing all of the details. They did acknowledge it's a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. God should be trusted, therefore. His promises have been shown true. Even up to this point, His faithfulness has been with them. He's delivered them through mighty signs and wonders, through the uh, Exodus and the Red Sea. In verses 26 to 33, we remember the refusal of the Israelites, a surprising turn of events. After all of this good information, yet you would not go up 
but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. We're told in Numbers 13 and 14, the people became undone as a result of the spies' report. We're told in verse 27 here, yet, and you murmured in your tents. The people engaged in panic throughout the land. In Numbers 13 and 14, we're told that the unbelief, the rebellion spread like a spiritual virus in their midst. And it just caught on. And everybody started freaking out corporately. Well, we can't go in. Oh, all of those people, all of those inhabitants, all of their mighty size and, uh, and uh, fortresses and weaponry. There's no way we can take them. So you murmured in your tents, verse 27 tells us. And here's some of what you said. Just think about verse 27. Because we don't get this part from Numbers 13 and 14. We get this information from Deuteronomy 1 only. You said in your tents... Because the Lord hated us, He's brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Now, there's a lot there. They are attributing motive to the Lord. And they are saying that what drove the Lord to this point in their lives with Him and in their covenant with Him is hatred for them. Because the Lord hated us, He's brought us out of the land of Egypt. So they don't deny that they were taken out of the land. They said, yeah, that happened. But he hated us. And so he brought us out of Egypt only for us to perish here. He brought us out not so that we would be destroyed by the Egyptians, but but so that we would be destroyed by the Amorites. And there is nothing in the stories of Exodus and Leviticus and the early part of Numbers that suggests anything other than the powerful, steadfast love of the Lord who's covenanted with promises to the patriarchs forward to give them the land of promise. And in verse 27, this language, because the Lord has hated us, isn't it indeed quite the opposite? Because the Lord has loved us, He's brought us out. The proof of God's love for them as the covenant steadfast promises of God, the redeeming power of God, and His faithfulness throughout the promised land. And yet they have looked at what has been evidence of God's love. And they have concluded it is evidence of God's hate. This is what they have reasoned. Their reasoning, of course, is wrong. They are afraid. And when they are afraid, they might look at evidence of God's grace and love in their lives and feel like it must be His hatred for them. Because the Lord has hated us. So in verse 28, where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt. Moses is reminding the people of what their ancestors had said. Our brothers, these spies, made our hearts melt by their report, saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. Verse 28 seems to mention three reasons. First, the height and fearsomeness of the inhabitants. They said, the people are greater and taller than we are. Number two, the greatness of the cities. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. That's hyperbole, of course. But it seems to be a fortified set of cities that are imposing and intimidating. And besides, in number three, the Anakim specifically are there. The Anakim were people who were known by reputation of being mighty and gigantic with size and power and strength. Some of the surviving people would later live among the Philistines, the Philistine cities, 
where these tall, mighty warriors of great renown, exemplified by someone known as Goliath, for instance, in 1 Samuel 17, had here in their older days a reputation of being fearsome. And I want you to know, in verse 29, Moses doesn't disagree with anything they said. The people are greater and taller. The cities are great and fortified. And the Anakim are there. Here's Moses. He says in verse 29, So I said to you, don't be in dread or afraid of them. Objectively, everything that people identified about the land were true. It was fertile and lush. It was a good land with produce. The people were mighty as inhabitants. Their cities were well fortified. The problem wasn't the facts. The problem was how they responded to them. And in verse 29, Moses says, here's what I want you to do. In light of what's in fact the case, don't be in dread. Don't be afraid. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. In other words, have a long memory here. The memory in the minds of the people of the Israelites should include an exodus from Egyptian captivity through signs and wonders poured out on the evil house of Pharaoh and the Israelites walking on dry ground through standing walls of water where they saw no way through and God made a way where there didn't seem to be one. So Moses says, the God who goes before you will fight for you just like he did when you were in Egypt. And in the wilderness in verse 31, where you've seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Maybe you've had the experience where you were walking with a young child who in their weakness eventually looked at you and raised up their arms and said, will you carry me the rest of the way? And God himself, bearing the Israelites through the wilderness, was such an attentive God and redeemer for them that it's as if he bore them upon his shoulders, carrying them to that very day. But he's also a warrior. Not only a tender father, but a fierce defender. He's a tender father for his people, but a warrior against his enemies. We're reminded of that in Exodus 14, 14. The Lord your God will fight for you. You have only to be silent, Moses told them. And in Exodus 15, 3, they remember in a song, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. So one writer puts it this way. One antidote to fear is a good memory because they had experienced, this writer says, Yahweh, both as a fighter and a father, a savior and a provider, a powerful combination of metaphors. They needed to take some time to remember because they're afraid. And when they're afraid, everything around them seems to fade away, including their memory of God's faithfulness. And they're just focused on what's right in front of them that's gained their attention and filled them with with trepidation. And Moses is saying, do not fear because he knows them. He has shepherded them for 40 years. And he's pleading with them to remember together. So their fear is understandable. Moses challenges it through the remembrance act that the people of God need to engage in. And in verse 32, yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God. In other words, they are being exhorted to trust the Lord and they refuse. There, Moses had pled with them not to fear and instead to remember what God had done for them. And yet, in spite of this, you did not believe the Lord your God, he says, who went before you in the way to seek out a place to pitch your tents in fire by night and in the cloud by day to show you by what way you should go. 
He's picturing here the presence of the Lord guiding the, the people from Egypt forward. He's picturing the pillar of cloud at night, and the, or the pillar of fire at night, and the cloud by day. And this was the presence of God visible to them in a way that demonstrated His care and faithfulness in spite of all of this. In spite of what they could recall, in spite of their present guidance and all the provision of manna from heaven and victory over any of the armies along the way, God had his word refused and rejected. Verses 32 to 33 says, in spite of this word, you did not believe. So Moses is saying to this new generation, remember the return of the spies, remember the refusal of the Israelites, and then remember what happened next. He says to them in verses 34 to 40, And the Lord heard your words and was angered. And he swore not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers. There's some play on words here of swearing. Because he had sworn an oath to the fathers in verse 35, I swear to you that the people of Abraham and his offspring will receive this land. But he says in verse 34, he swore something else as well. An oath in the wilderness that none of this evil generation shall receive the earlier sworn land. God would keep his earlier oath to the children of the wilderness generation. So none of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land. How does he describe them? Don't pass by that adjective. He doesn't say just that none of the men of this generation. He calls them an evil generation. Because they've rebelled against God and they refused To receive the promised land that he's brought them all this way. They have been willing to look at evidence of God's love and call it evidence of God's hatefulness of them. In verse 35, none of them shall see this good land. Except, in verse 36, Caleb the son of Jephunneh, he shall see it. And to him and to his children I'll give the land on which he's trodden because he's wholly followed the Lord. Caleb was one of the twelve spies, you see. In Numbers 13, he's named among those 12 men who were, cho- who were uh, chosen among the tribes. Caleb was one of the spies who returned with the same facts about the land as the other group. And he said, now let's go in and occupy it. Let's go in and take the land. But they rejected Caleb's faithful response. And so while the Lord will ban the evil generation, Caleb is an example of faithfulness. He shall see the land and to his children I will give it. Because he has wholly followed the Lord. The end of verse 36 is so encouraging. Be like Caleb, Moses is saying. Caleb wholly followed the Lord. His heart was committed to the promises of God. He was not in dread of what God had already promised to defeat. In other words, these Canaanites were as good as destroyed. All they needed was the unfolding reality of the conquest in real time. The inheritance was not an option. It was going to happen by God's divine decree. Caleb believed, I can know these facts about the promised land and I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to fear of what in God's decree has already been condemned. And in verse 36, Caleb is described as someone who's wholly followed the Lord. And if the Israelites are to have this history reviewed so that they will not be like their evil generation, who ought they to imitate? They ought to imitate the faith of the one who said, let's go into the land. Be like him. Trust God. In verse 37, even with me, the Lord was angry on your account and said, you shall not go in there also. We uh, are brought in, in our mind to Numbers 20, where in Numbers 20, the Israelites had angered Moses. He had been with them for a long time, 
And in their 40th year, that had been uh, essentially on the horizon, uh, Moses was told to, to speak to the rock. And water would be given to it in Numbers 20. And it reminds us of the miracle in Exodus where water came from the rock. Except at that point in Exodus, he had to strike it. He was told to do that. So having been told earlier to strike the rock and having been told to speak to the rock, we're prepared for Moses' faithfulness. He struck the rock in Exodus. We're waiting for him to speak to the rock in Numbers. But he strikes the rock twice in public anger, humiliating himself as a leader and compromising his credibility. And he is forbidden to enter the promised land. He will die at age 120 in this 40th year in approximately 1406 B.C. God said to Moses, you also shall not go in there. Now, it's not because Moses was evil like the evil generation. But he would receive the same consequence of the evil generation for rejecting what God had told him to do. And what seemed to make it so significant is that Moses didn't occupy just any old role throughout the promised land. He was their mediator and covenant mediator at Sinai and beyond. And because of his position in the promised land, his refusal to follow God's words had even greater implications. Moses was denied the land. In verse 38, the other figure besides Caleb who would go is Joshua. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. That's Moses' way of saying he's the successor. He will be the one to, to follow my footsteps. He will lead the people into the promised land. And we have the book of Joshua narrating that fulfillment. But we're told here Joshua is the son of Nun, and he stands before you. He shall enter, God said to Moses. In Numbers chapter 27, there's a whole commissioning of Joshua. Joshua is set apart by Moses' own appointment and approval and encouragement to be the one. And then in verse 39 through 40, the rest of the remembering of the judgment of the Lord, he says, and as for your little ones, that uh, older generation was told, as for your little ones who you said would become a prey, and your children who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there. To them I will give it and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. What verses 39 and 40 are saying is they're reminding us of what the people in Numbers 13 were concerned about. When they heard the report that the spies returned with, the majority of the spies said, these people are going to destroy us. And the people of Israel panicked and they said, if we go into this land, we and our children, our wives and our little ones, they're just going to be taken in and destroyed. So Moses is told, here's what the Israelites need to know. Their children are going into this land and the the thing that they were afraid as the older generation that would happen to their children, it will not happen. Those children who right now have no sense of moral right and wrong, who are just young ones and who are not uh, emotionally and spiritually and morally matured yet with moral discernment. He says these little ones that you thought would become a prey, they will conquest the land. It will be given to them. To them I will give it and they shall possess it. So is, is it the fact that the spies went through the land and they came back and they said, the people are so tall and the cities are so great and fortified. Did it turn out that that wasn't the case? Is that why the land was possessed by the children? No. In fact, the height was correct and the fortified cities were objectively true. It's that God said, I will give it to them. And that means even though, even though the people of the land were great, God was greater. And even though the cities seem to be fortified up to heaven, God reigns in heaven over all heaven and earth. To them I will give it and they shall possess it. As for you, journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. 
What he's telling them then, back in the rebellion in Kadesh Barnea, is when they rebelled in Numbers 13 and 14, they're going to go back in this direction and they're going to wander. Now, they're not actually going to go back to Egypt and they're not actually going to recross the Red Sea. He's saying the Red Sea's that way, turn around and go. All right, so this is his way of saying, you're now going to march in the opposite direction. Go away from the promised land. It is no longer for you. Not until every one of your bodies are dead in the wilderness. It's the language of Numbers 14. For every day the spies spied out the land 40 days, one year for one day was, was the judgment. 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. In verses 41 to 46, they remember a defeat of the Israelites in this historical review. So you answered me in verse 41. You answered me, we've sinned against the Lord. Yeah, Numbers 13 and 14 is exactly what it was. We call it sin. They sinned against the Lord. So they said, we did that. We ourselves will go up and fight just as the Lord our God has commanded us. Wait, hold on. What happened? So if you go back to Numbers 14, an unthinkable thing starts to unfold at the very end of the chapter. It's one of the underread parts of the chapter. The Israelites were told, go back to the Red Sea. But there's this little narrative at the end of Numbers 14 where they get this boost of confidence that's groundless. And they think, well, we're just going to go ahead and go up into the land because we sinned against the Lord. So let's just, we'll show him how how committed we are. We're going to go into the land. So they said, we ourselves are going to go up and fight just as the Lord our God commanded us. So every one of you fastened on his weapons of war and thought it easy to go up into the hill country. And so what happens is, the Lord said, go back to the Red Sea area. So they're supposed to turn around. Instead, they're prepared to go up to this area near Arad in the Negev Desert. Arad is where you might find these people that are identified in verses 41 to 46. He says, and and the Lord says to me in verse 42, You say to them, do not go up and fight, for I am not in your midst, lest you be defeated before your enemies. God says to them, if you are going to go, it will be without my favor. If you're going to go, it will be without my blessing of victory. So do not go up. He is saying to them. I mean, he earlier said to them in verse 40, turn around and and go back in the opposite direction. And then he says in verse 42, do not go up. In verse 43, so I spoke to you and you would not listen. But you rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the hill country. Their arrogance is on display. They didn't listen to the Lord earlier, and they didn't listen to the Lord then. They refused His command to go up into the land, so they received judgment from God. And He says to go back. And now they refuse His command, which most recently was turn around and go in the opposite direction. They wouldn't listen to that either. Oh, the utter foolishness and rebellion on display. He says to them in verse 43, You rebelled against the command of God. And presumptuously went up into the hill country. Then the Amorites who lived in that hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do. I don't know if you've ever been chased by a group of bees. No one wants that experience more than once, if even once. And you, you, uh, you, you think about messing with a nest of stinging insects. And uh, in some way provoking them and having to flee because they're after you. And in verse 44, he says, they chased you like a beehive you disturbed. And they beat you down. Okay, so now we're moving from bee imagery to something else. (laughs) Bees don't beat you down. But uh, the bees 
chasing you. That's the imagery of these Amorites coming after you. And you were beaten down in Seir as far as, far as Hormah, which is in this area of Edom where Mount Seir is. So they went up to this area and were chased out of this area and were absolutely decimated any of them that went up to fight. They were defeated by their enemies. This is a blazing sign to them. God's favor is not upon you in this, in this battle. Don't go up, but they did anyway. And it is confirmed that the words of Moses earlier, do not go up and fight, he said to them from God, for I'm not in your midst, Yahweh said. Yeah, indeed. Indeed, Yahweh was not in their midst in the sense that his blessing and favor had not gone with them. They were humiliated. What should have been a victory in the promised land was now a defeat because they have defied God. They were hammered, beaten down. The imagery of being beaten down is like hammering something with a tool that takes something and crushes it into fine powder. He says, you were beaten down into fine powder, basically. That's the imagery. It was a devastating defeat. In verse 45, and you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. Whew, this is so strong. I mean, you stop to think about this, this language. You return and you came before the Lord and you're, you're weeping, but coming out of, out of the fact that you are an evil generation and you have refused the command of God and you've just been humiliated by enemies right outside the promised land. And so you are just devastated as well. But the Lord didn't listen to your voice or give ear to you. His position toward them is one of judgment and not blessing. In verse 45, they wept before the Lord, which may mean they came to the tabernacle. To come before the Lord often has in mind the actual dwelling place or house of the Lord where they go to the tabernacle and they come for prayer and mediation. And they came and the Lord had refused their voice. So in verse 46, you remained at Kadesh many days, the days that you remained there, which means the wilderness and beyond is the place of their next year's until the 40-year judgment was to be complete. We remember the spies. We remember the refusal of the Israelites when they heard that report. We remember the judgment of God of 40 years of wandering as a response to their response. And we remember how the Israelites didn't turn around and go in the opposite direction like God said. We'll just go up with the We'll go up and try to uh, take the promised land. And God says, you're going to be defeated. I'm not going with you. So we remember their arrogance their self-sufficiency and their rebellious activity and how God's judgment was upon them. Why review this for the next generation? So that they will be a generation that walks with God and holds fast to His Word. Remembering this history is remembering the folly of those who have refused the commands of God. When we hear testimonies and historical episodes in people's lives, where they bring great devastation in their lives because they've refused the words of God. And their folly has led to destruction. We look at this, and with eyes to see and ears to hear, let us be those who say, I want to walk then by faith and not refuse the Lord, and not rebel against His commands. Think about the verbs in Deuteronomy 1, that when you cluster them all together, it's pretty terrible. In chapter 126, you rebelled against the command of the Lord. 127, you murmured in your tents. In 127, you didn't, uh, or in, in 132, you did not believe the Lord your God. 
In 135, they're called an evil generation. In 142, God said, I'm not in your midst. In 143, he says, you would not listen. In 143, he says, you rebelled against the command of the Lord. You start to put phrase upon phrase and verb upon verb about what the actions of these people were and how they're to be described with adjectives like evil. Then you say, oh God, help us. But by your grace, Lord, (laughs) help us by your strength and help us with sensitive hearts, warm to your words, warm to your wisdom and commands to walk wisely. Because we also want to be those bound for the promised land, don't we? The Lord has redeemed us in order to bring us all the way to His place of promise, which the land of Canaan in the Old Testament was a foreshadowing of the new heavens and new earth, the new creation for the people of God. And we would be wrong if we looked at the evidence of God's love in our lives and concluded that the Lord has done this to us because He hates us. The people that say that are in rebellion against God in Deuteronomy 1. They need to look at the evidence of God's love for them, His steadfast covenant promises, His redeeming power, and they need to realize He did not bring us By his redeeming grace out of Egypt for us to perish under his enemies. He's brought us out of this Egyptian captivity to bring us to the land he has for us. In other words, the Lord has redeemed us in order to bring us all the way to the place of promise and not to stop short. We are bound for the promised land. You know what the word of God is for us tonight? The word of God for us is chapter 121. Do not fear and do not be dismayed. The land the Lord your God is bringing us to is good. It is good. And it is flowing with life and joy and new creation. The enemies and temptations along the way are real and they are strong. But they are weaker than the power and promises of God. And that's good news. The Israelites needed to remember. They needed to meditate upon the words and promises and covenant of God. We're reminded in chapter 1, verse 30, the Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you've seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. We will be able to say not only all the way my Savior leads me, we will say all the way my Savior carried me. All the way. Faithful from start to finish, bearing us up as a loving father with steadfast love, carried with his loving kindness all the way. The Lord has led us this far and carried us this far. So here's what we do, friends. We don't turn back. We keep going. One foot in front of the other. We don't turn back. Let's not respond to the promises of God with doubt and unbelief. We're bound for the promised land. And the words are true. Oh, are those... Wide extended plains shines one eternal day. And there God the Son forever reigns and scatters night away. Let's pray.